Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And this episode about diagnosis facts and misconceptions is going to give us some insights about specific mental illness profiles. Though a number of factors play into how a mental illness manifests, I'm working here from the assumption that they arise from a combination of biological factors and environmental factors, and that the environmental factors are the ones that we have the most control over, and so are the ones we should be focusing on in treatment. I find that thinking about symptoms as adaptations to experience makes sense in a lot more cases than seeing them as random occurrences in the brain that people just have to live with. Please listen to the episode, A Controversial Discussion on Therapy Theory, to hear more about that. The posts that we'll be reviewing today are depression, the natural process, social anxiety, the ranking system in our minds, ADHD, a soapbox, borderline bipolar or split personality, and do you know a narcissist? Let's get started. Depression, the natural process. Hibernation is a form of depression. When an animal feels that going out into a food-scarce, snowy environment will be a waste of calories, it stays in bed and slows down its metabolism, because that's the most adaptive thing to do. When your body is physically exhausted, it depresses, diverting all of its resources to conservation and recovery. When a deer is caught by a mountain lion and resistance is futile, it depresses its functions, particularly pain transmission, because that's the best thing to do. Depressive responses are normal and necessary for mammal survival. Now, imagine if we tried to interfere with them. You go into a bear's cave while it's hibernating and you poke it, saying things like, Hey, what's your plan? You can't just do nothing all day. Come on, I have lots of ideas. You know, you're causing your own problem by being so lazy. If you're lucky, the bear will just ignore you, but I expect an aggressive response. If you manage to kick said bear out of the cave, it will operate half-heartedly because it's resisting strong hibernation instincts. This disruption will make it harder for the bear to operate normally when the snow melts, and there's actually a good reason to leave the cave. If you manage to shut down the hibernation response altogether, maybe by shaming the bear for even having it, you get a bear that lives in a state of agitation and dysregulation, one that feels confused about its body responses, or a numb, robotic kind of bear. One of the first things I do with my clients is I give them permission to be depressed. If the body is depressing, it's doing so for a legitimate reason. There are certain stressors overwhelming the system. When the body has rested sufficiently, the next natural step is to steadily work through the emotions and stimuli that trigger the depressive function, which is actually also what mammal, other mammals do. When emotions don't kill us or draw new threats from the environment, which for humans are things like fixing, shaming, or judgment, then the emotions flow out. Our body doesn't detect winter state anymore, and we can enjoy the spring. But interference with this process can cause serious issues. As mentioned before, shaming people for being depressed or impressing urgency in other ways can force people out of depression. Sometimes this is actually necessary, like in life or death situations, but usually it's just not. Invalidating the reasons the body got depressed, meaning the anxiety sources, saying that they're not real or that the person shouldn't feel that way, keeps 
people from moving through the next natural process, you know, moving through and digesting those emotions. This can send them back into depression. Other things that distract from our emotional process, things like phones, video games, drugs, shopping, also interfere with recovery. Though we recognize that these are sometimes necessary. You can see the episode about coping uh, for more on that. But imagine if you gave our metaphorical bear a Netflix subscription and it just binged all winter instead of hibernating as it's supposed to. Yeah, that bear would have lots of problems. So some of you might be thinking, so you're saying I should let them sit around all day and be depressed or that I should just do that? No, what I'm saying is that a depressed person can recover naturally in the right environment. Staying in bed all day with a phone is not the right environment. Resting enough without distractions and without shame for resting, without you know criticism for being depressed, then encountering a safe presence that will validate and help the emotions flow out is the right environment. This process should not be forced. It just needs to be allowed. The therapy room is an example of that environment where people can come in and just be depressed, and I'm not trying to yank them out of it. So, but helping someone in that situation requires that we examine our own feelings about watching our loved ones suffer from depression. Does it make us scared? Does it trigger our anxiety? Do we feel intense pain as we watch it? These kinds of feelings often drive our need to force someone out of it, either with aggression or urgent attempts to fix. Those anxieties will need to be processed before we can reduce our interference in someone else's healing. It's one of the hardest things about being a therapist is processing my own anxiety, my need to fix other people, because that actually keeps them from getting better. As a footnote, there are some conditions that may require extra skilled guidance to go through the natural process, such as an OCD or personality disorders. Please seek consultation for these, but these conditions can still improve significantly in the absence of shame or forcing. And a footnote about medications. Medications play a different role for each person. Some I see definitely restricting the healing process, but some medications make healing possible for some people, and some just do nothing. You'll know best how a medication is affecting you. Okay, the next post is social anxiety, the ranking system in our minds. Often, clients report that the emotion underlying their social anxiety is the fear of being judged, criticized, or evaluated by those around them. You know that this is likely not the case. Your fellow patrons at the grocery store have little interest in determining your worth as a human, and the other kids at your high school are too busy worrying about what others are thinking to worry about what you're wearing. If they are playing this ranking game in their minds, then they also have some degree of social anxiety, even if they find themselves in the top ranks. This is a game that no one wants to play anyway, so these judgments should mean very little to us. And yet, we still feel this way. Babies are not born to fret about their appearance, charisma, or social status, so this feeling must come from somewhere else. The feeling of shame involves a sense of being less worthy or lovable than others. It can arise from being made to feel less than, but also from being made to feel better than. I have a post called Praising and Comparing Children that talks about this effect. If there appeared to be a ranking system in your family or in other important social settings, you are likely to see one everywhere you go. 
It makes sense that your fight-or-flight response would be triggered if you are conditioned to think that there's an actual pecking order or food chain. The following experiences in our families can inadvertently lead us to create ranking systems in our minds, such as when certain children get more praise or attention if they are more accomplished in sports, music, grades, parents' hobbies, or they just make fewer mistakes. Or when children are allowed to assert dominance over other children aggressively through words or actions, such as when the parents' backs are turned or if the parents are too overwhelmed and exhausted to interfere. If consequences are administered inconsistently, or if we hear parents or older siblings make judgmental or critical statements about certain people, groups, or ideologies, or if we feel judged or shamed generally. Hierarchies can differ from anxiety-driven ranking systems in that there's a difference of authority without a difference in respect or treatment. Meaning hierarchies in school or workplaces um, where you might have a CEO that treats the janitor respectfully, like a human being, even though they technically have different ranks. As long as they're not acting like some people are actually better or more important or more worthy as souls than other people, then this anxiety doesn't need to arise. But if you experience the trauma of a toxic work or school social ranking system, it helps to come home to a place where everyone feels loved equally and unconditionally. We treat social anxiety by first calling it what it is, identifying its original sources, processing the old trauma and shame, and disrupting any mechanisms that perpetuate ranking systems in the present. We ask, are your parents still being critical? Are your friends still being clicky? And are you still making comparisons in the grocery store? Okay, this next one. Um, big topic relevant in our day about ADHD and the sharp rise in its diagnosis and administration of stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin. Let me start by saying that I believe ADHD to be a fully legitimate diagnosis. I've seen many friends struggle from its effects and I grieve over the judgments and misunderstandings others have of it. However, I am bothered by the criteria which qualify a diagnosis of ADHD, especially for those diagnosed in adulthood. First, let us define ADHD, or Attention Deficit Slash Hyperactivity Disorder. As a member of the Neurodevelopmental Disorders, it is a condition that exists in the structure of the brain, has at least, has at least existed since birth, which the DSM now defines as observed before age 12, and exists across multiple contexts, meaning at home, school, work, and social settings. If you have it in just, if you have distractibility, you know, poor focus, anxiety in one of those things, you don't or you shouldn't qualify for ADHD. This means that you don't have ADHD if you didn't have it as a child, and again, if you only had it in certain social settings. But generally speaking, the inattentive profile symptoms include trouble focusing or paying attention, trouble listening, trouble remembering, trouble following instructions, avoiding mentally strenuous tasks, being easily distracted, and losing things. The hyperactive profile includes patterns of interrupting or blurting out, feeling restless, fidgety, and constantly wanting to move, and for children, getting up and climbing on things, or talking excessively and being noisy. The issue is that these symptoms must be best explained by an inherent biological variation. Again, something you were born with. 
not by any other mental condition in order to qualify as true ADHD. But the thing is, literally every symptom is also a symptom of PTSD or a manifestation of anxiety. Many can also be direct results of poor sleep or too much screen time. This is most apparent with the inattentive profile. Anxiety clouds our executive functioning, accounting for poor attention, spacing out, forgetfulness, distractibility, and distress at strenuous tasks, but can also be seen in hyperactivity as excessive talking, interrupting, and fidgetiness can easily be attributed to feeling insecure or a need for attention, which a lot of people misunderstand saying like, oh, that kid just wants attention, but there's actually an issue if a kid is desperate for attention, right? I have literally seen kids who qualified for ADHD while living in one setting who didn't qualify for a diagnosis in another, uh, as in the case of parental custody changes. The ADHD symptoms were their contextual response to stress, not a result of their inherent brain variation. I have adults coming to see me who say they have ADHD and maybe even received a diagnosis from their primary physician. So I ask them about their stress levels and they say, super high. I ask about their childhood trauma, and they say, a ton. I ask about their relationships, they say, shaky at best. I ask about their sleep, abysmal. So I'm not convinced yet that they have ADHD. All of these other things could easily account for their poor focus. They might say something like, but it's been this way as long as I can remember. I might say, yes, but your life circumstances have also always been really stressful. Your parents were divorced when you were three. I'm not saying these people don't have ADHD. I'm just saying that we need to tease apart the effects of their life circumstances before they chalk it all up to one diagnosis and go about doing ADHD treatment. I'd really be convinced if these symptoms existed under peaceful circumstances without any interference from unprocessed trauma. Another thing they say, but it must be ADHD because the medication works so well. I'm glad that they're seeing positive effects of these medications, but ADHD meds are all stimulants. They are chemically similar to meth and cocaine and high doses of caffeine, which all make generally tend to make people feel a lot better and can work wonders for anxiety symptoms, at least temporarily. The relationship between ADHD diagnoses and other conditions such as anxiety, depression, and oppositional defiant disorder are very strong. And nearly all cases of these diagnoses can be attributed to some identifiable current or past stressor. And studies show how someone will be more likely to not qualify for the diagnosis in adulthood after being diagnosed in childhood, supporting the idea that at least some ADHD symptoms could be a result of environment rather than permanent biological features. So why does this matter? It's because the treatment of ADHD looks different than the treatment of mood or trauma-related disorders. If you attribute anxiety symptoms to a biological condition you were born with and thus count only on medical treatments, you may miss the opportunity to treat the primary sources and may become frustrated when common ADHD treatments meet dead ends. An example, doctor, I can't sit still. I can't focus. I space out a lot and I talk too much. I think I have ADHD and would like some medication. Doctor, Okay, this could be ADHD, but from your intake paperwork, you indicated substantial emotional neglect as a child. The symptoms you're talking about could also easily result from this trauma. Before I prescribe you some stimulants, maybe you could try a therapy with an EMDR or a CBTT specialist? Okay, I'll do it. 
six months later. Doctor, therapy worked. The symptoms have gotten down a ton and are honestly not much of a problem. I honestly feel a whole lot better overall since my anxieties have also decreased. Great to hear. I'm glad we tried that first, because if we tried to treat you with stimulants, you might have continued with your underlying anxiety and the meds wouldn't have worked for very long anyway. My last thoughts on this. There are many people who definitely have ADHD and in Axis 1 mental illness, like anxiety or depression. And it's possible that anxiety and depression were caused by experiences related to the ADHD. This can happen when kids are bullied or shamed for their irregular behaviors, or their struggle to flourish in typical environments that making them feel inadequate. The ADHD symptoms could be amplified by their frustration at failure or the fear of shame. Either way, these two diagnoses need to be identified and treated on their own merits. It may be that, once the anxiety or depression is treated effectively, the remaining ADHD symptoms don't create a significant impact, or could be managed with a lower dose of medication than previously thought. So, to sum up, ADHD is real, but can easily be confused with the manifestations of other stressors, and is likely overdiagnosed. Diagnosis must take all criteria into account, especially the neurodevelopmental source, meaning the one, a source that you were born with, not just the checklist of symptoms. ADHD symptoms should be differentiated from those of other stressors. Are you fidgety in class because of a biological variation in your brain, or because you're socially anxious? Treatments for ADHD symptoms can have positive impacts on anxiety symptoms, but not because they treat the causes. Misdiagnosis could keep the true sources of symptoms from being addressed. Um, and at the end of this post, I cite two studies, um, which I will include in the description. All right, next post is called Bipolar, Borderline, or Split Personalities. A lot of people come in accusing their partner or child of being bipolar or having split personalities. Obviously, they're not trying to give an official diagnosis, they're just describing behaviors, but I'd like to clarify what these terms actually mean. The first one, borderline personality disorder, which a lot of people mislabel as bipolar. This is an extreme sense of insecurity and emotional volatility, which often results from persistent abuse in early, in early life. When years of unprocessed emotional wounds accumulate, any misplaced word or action might trigger an emotional breakdown, and the person enters survival mode, feeling very aggressive or anxious, having little access to logic. Everybody is somewhere on the borderline spectrum because we all have emotional wounds that we haven't fully processed meaning that the hurt comes back to make us more distressed about daily stressors than we should be. It is only diagnosable once the wounds build up and interfere with your life to a severe degree. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about borderline. Every client I have that has a borderline diagnosis, I also give a chronic PTSD diagnosis to because I feel like that more effectively explains what's happening here. So think of it this way. If a soldier goes off to war and comes back, a, the typical triggers that would make that soldier become hyper-aggressive or panicked or shut down are things like loud noises, fireworks, um, things like that, things that remind them of the trauma of battle. A person with borderline is triggered in the same way, except for instead of fireworks or loud noises triggering them, it's any sign of trouble in a relationship, a disagreement, 
waiting too long to text back, um, any like misplaced compliment, anything that looks like trouble in the relationship triggers the relationship trauma that this person grew up with, and it's going to make them shut down or become super aggressive, or or it might activate the fawning response, right? A desperate attempt to reconnect. So just wanted to put borderline in a little bit greater context for you. And there's more on that in the steps booklet um, in the second half about complex disorders. So what is bipolar? Bipolar is on the spectrum of mood disorders and it is categorized in three forms. Bipolar one is characterized by depressive episodes that last over a week with a with occasional manic episodes. But the thing is, you only need to have one manic episode to be diagnosed with bipolar 1. And a manic episode lasts over a week and involves the person feeling they need little sleep, they make lots of impulsive decisions, they have an inflated ego, they have little consideration of other people around them, and, you know, anything implied by the term manic. Um, a mania may be preceded by a hypomania. And hypomania is characterized by bipolar 2. You just have to have one hypomanic episode to be diagnosed with bipolar 2. And this is this means a little bit less than mania. People in hypomanic states might have a boosted mood, feel more productive, they're oddly very energized and extra friendly. Um, people in hypomanic states can actually be very pleasant to be around, kind of unusually pleasant to be around. And then uh, the last category is cyclothymia. This is a less intense version where a person feels like less intense depressive episodes and less intense sort of hypomanic episodes where they feel kind of unusually, unusually good for short periods of time, um, but mostly feeling depressed a lot of the time. Um, I actually don't see a ton of diagnoses of cyclothymia, mostly because uh, I think it doesn't it doesn't throw people off too much. People can still function okay with cyclothymia. And then there's split personalities. Right? Another thing often, often mistaken with borderline. So this condition, scientifically known as dissociative identity disorder, or DID, is what you see in the movies. And your spouse or child or teenager probably does not have it. This involves an extreme difference in experience of reality for someone who has almost certainly undergone extreme trauma of some form, usually repeated sexual traumas. Dissociation is the escape from a state where you feel intense pain, and the extreme form of that is an alternate personality that can last for hours or even days on end. And so someone just like turning into a different person with a short trigger and they stay that way, you know, for a few minutes or a few hours, that's probably more of a borderline, you know, or a PTSD symptom. But when somebody like takes on a new name and they forget what happened the previous day, um, that's when you're moving into the dissociative disorder category. But remember that all of these conditions are adaptations to adverse stressors. Even hypomanic or manic states are often survival responses. The body needs a break from oppressive, depressing stress, so it forces a period where you make yourself a priority and have lots of energy. If you don't process your emotions appropriately, then you'll stuff them until they come out forcibly. Okay, the last post we will review is called, Do You Know a Narcissist?
And what does that mean? I've been asked a couple times recently what it really means to be a narcissist, with several people diagnosing their partners with this condition and some diagnosing themselves. To start, we can define narcissist as someone with narcissistic personality disorder, according to the DSM-5, meaning that they have met five of the following conditions consistently since early adulthood. Children and teens cannot be diagnosed with narcissism, because if they were, then literally all toddlers would have narcissistic personality disorder. So these are the criteria. One, they have a grandiose sense of self-importance, meaning they exaggerate achievements and talents. They expect to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Number two, they're preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Three, they believe that they are special and unique and can only be understood by or associated with other special or high-status people or institutions. Number four, they require excessive admiration. Five, they have a sense of entitlement or unreasonable expectation of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. Six, they're interpersonally exploitative. They take advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seven, they lack empathy. They're unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Eight, they're often envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. Nine, they're arrogant and have haughty behaviors and attitudes. So remember, they just have to qualify for five of those symptoms and to show them consistently. Just about everybody enacts these kind of behaviors sometimes, and some people show them frequently. But very few people actually demonstrate these constantly. Very few people actually have narcissistic personality disorder. The people that may qualify for a diagnosis would hardly admit that they have these signs and become very upset with any indication of imperfection or illness. Most of the people getting a lay diagnosis of narcissism tend to just have the following tendencies. They have difficulty admitting faults or have selective memories of their shortcomings. They have trouble apologizing. They are strong debaters and rarely back down from an opinion, even if it's irrational. And they have trouble validating and identifying emotions in themselves and others. These traits are on the spectrum of narcissism, but these alone don't make someone a narcissist. So why do these traits even arise in someone? What function do they serve? Well, think about when you act a little narcissistic yourself. It usually happens when you're feeling insecure, overwhelmed, or anxious. Certain levels of stress send us into our fight-or-flight brain, which, according to evolutionary advantage, is self-serving for survival purposes. The more anxious and insecure you are, or the less access to your logical frontal brain you have, the more narcissistic you are going to act. So toddlers, teens, and those with certain developmental disorders, such as autism, which literally means self-ism, and those with traumatic pasts exhibit more self-serving survival behaviors. I'm assuming the people you think are narcissists are not toddlers or on the autism spectrum. If you know them well, you are probably aware of their history of abuse, neglect, invalidation, or emotional suppression growing up. They may have a parent with narcissistic qualities. These aren't passed on genetically. When you live in a household that has an actual food chain, you treat people outside your home according, accordingly to help you feel safe. So how do we treat narcissistic traits? Well, we help people feel safe enough to admit the truth. They hate themselves, they feel insecure, and have felt this way for a long time. The expression of these vulnerable feelings in a validating environment helps the brain know it doesn't need to be fighting for the top of a food chain. 
meaning I don't allow there to be a food chain in the therapy room. I don't engage in any power struggles with these people. The danger is over. Narcissism is a protective shell, and the shell can be very hard to crack. So what can you do with the narcissist in your life? Though it will be more difficult, we still follow the same principles that we do with everybody else. One, we validate all feelings, but set boundaries with all unacceptable behaviors. We express ourselves honestly, using feelings, not attacks, criticisms, or judgment. We also don't try to use logic to combat illogical arguments. We are kind always. Shaming a highly insecure person only adds fuel to the fire. It makes it harder for them to admit to the deep shame that they feel. Being kind while still holding boundaries does not condone inappropriate behavior. It may be your kindness that allows this person to access the pain and insecurity underlying the shell. Last, we relinquish responsibility for challenging their thinking or behavior. Hold your boundaries and take care of yourselves first because... Um, narcissistic personalities have a tendency to infect others with mental illness. So that is part one of our diagnostic education. Though there are many other diagnoses in our standard manuals, hopefully these explanations can give you a formula for explaining not only those with diagnosed illnesses, but all emotions and behaviors generally. Um, I'd like to create more parts about diagnoses. If there are some specifically that you want to hear more about, go ahead and shoot me a message. Thank you so much.